Hosea 2:14 through chapter 3 verse 5 the redemption of Israel true Israel the redemption that God initiates and accomplishes verse 14 therefore behold I will allure her bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope and she will sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Baali, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they will say, You are my God. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Amen. In the earlier part of this chapter, chapter 2, verses 2 to 13, the Lord, through Hosea the prophet, announced a judgment against the people. He indicted them and then explained his punishment against them because of all that he provided, yet they turned away from him, and therefore they deserve to be punished for their sins. Well, now he explains in verses 14 and following how he's going to redeem them. Remember what this analogy is in this chapter. The nation as a whole is considered a mother and the people as individuals are considered the mother's children. The mother as a whole, the nation committed adultery, adultery and prostitution. But the children, many of them do the same as the mother. But in verses 14, uh, chapter 2, 14 to 3, 5, some of the children of this evil, adulterous mother, some of the children will be redeemed. And when they are redeemed, it's because God himself initiates that redemption. He's the one that causes it to happen. And when he causes it to happen, it finds its complete and eternal fulfillment because God is in control of their redemption. That's what we find in this section 2.14 to 3.5. Let's see now how he explains what he will do. Remember, just as the judgments often started with, I will, I will, so also the restoration, the redemption here. Notice from verse 14 and following how often God says, I. God starts it. He initiates it. It won't happen unless God does it. Verse 14, I will allure her. Bring her, speak kindly to her. 15, I will give her her vineyards from there. Verse 17, I will remove the names 
of the idols. In verse 18, I will also make a covenant for them. Verse 18, I will abolish. Verse 19, three times in 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me. Three times he says it in 19 and 20. Then, even in verse 22, we'll speak more of this, they will respond to Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows, which means God is acting. God is the one making this happen. Verse 23, I will sow her. 23, again, I will also have compassion on her. And 23, I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. It is God who is acting here. He is the main actor. This redemption will not occur unless God acts. And he acts as the primary mover and shaker. He is the cause of this. And then the people respond accordingly. Verse 14, God will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Usually to allure is negative, but not in this context. In this context, it's positive to allure, to draw out or to bring out in a good sense because God's the one doing it. Therefore, it is good. A word of clarification with some words in Scripture and some analogies in Scripture. It's often the case that some analogies have a negative meaning and negative connotation, but the same analogy on occasion has a positive meaning, a positive connotation. For example, a lion in the Bible, like in Amos, Amos chapter 1, or Amos chapter 3, a lion in the Bible is often a negative analogy because a lion is the strongest and the most vicious. No one can overcome this wild beast, right? And even Satan is compared to a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? So lions are like that. However, what about in Revelation 5.5, 5, what is Jesus called? He's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. The lion from the tribe of Judah. And even in Amos chapters 1 and 3, God himself is that lion who judges and punishes. So in that sense, the lion is a good analogy because God is the one who is the lion. Another an example of this is the serpent. The serpent in the scripture is usually a poisonous and dangerous snake, the devil, right? Revelation 12, 9, 12, 15, and 20, verse 2. He is called the serpent of old, the dragon, the devil, and Satan. That's who he is. And that's usually negative. But didn't Jesus tell us in... Um, in Matthew 10, he said, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He told us to be shrewd as serpents, not in the negative sense, but just like the serpent knows what it's doing and where it's going and how to move about and maneuver itself. In that good sense, that's the way we should be. And that's what we have here. I say this because when we usually hear this word to allure, we usually think of uh, a lewd or loose woman who's trying to entice a susceptible man, right? That's the way we usually see it. And there's even a, a magazine called Allure that's meant for that very purpose, to have sleazy women on the pictures or, or in the magazine to attract men, but not in God's case. In God's case, there's an opposite meaning. There's a positive meaning. So he brings his redeemed people into the wilderness and speaks kindly to her. Does this remind us of something? Yes, God brought Israel initially out of Egypt into the wilderness and he spoke kindly to Israel in the wilderness. He did many good things for them. Exodus 14, 15, all the way 
through the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, God did many good things in the wilderness for Israel for 40 years. He spoke kindly to her and provided for her. Verse 15, Then I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. God's going to provide vineyards there or from there in the wilderness. The wilderness where you don't expect vineyards to grow, God is going to transform that which is barren and useless and dry and worthless for production into something that is productive. (coughs) Verse 15 also makes a reference to the Valley of Accor. Valley of Accor. This was named the Valley of Accor in Joshua 7.26, meaning the Valley of Trouble, because it was at this place that Achan and his family were put to death because he stole some of the plunder from the city of Jericho. When he was discovered, he was put to death, his family was put to death, and there was a heap of stones over their dead bodies, and it was named Valley of Accor, meaning Valley of Trouble. But now he says, that which was cursed is going to be a door of hope. God takes that which was accursed and worthless, unable, uh, without a pulse, to be something that's fruitful and hopeful, the door of hope now. And because of this, verse 15, Israel will sing. Redeemed Israel will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Remember, when God delivered Israel through the sea and destroyed the Egyptians in the sea, what did they do in Exodus 15? Actually, it starts in Exodus 14.31 to 15.21. At the end of chapter 14 and the first part of chapter 15, they rejoice, they believe, they sing a song, they fear God, they dance, they they praise God as they should. This is what he means. He's referencing that. Well, Israel did it pretentiously at that time, but now Israel, redeemed Israel, will do it sincerely, genuinely, because God will in a full and complete sense, redeem them. But what was symbolized in Exodus 14 and 15 is going to be realized because true redemption occurs, the redemption of the soul, not just redemption from slavery in Egypt, but redemption of the soul. 16, verse 16, And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. In Hebrew, the word Ish means man or husband, depending on context. This ending with the I, pronounced as a double E, E, she, means my husband or my man, but in this context, my husband. You will call me my husband. Why? Because we are going to be his bride, as he says in verses 19 and 20. We're going to be his bride We're going to be his pure virgin. We're going to be the one that marries him. So if we're going to marry God, we will call God my husband, right? We are the bride of Christ. We'll call him that, and we will no longer call God Baali. Baali. This is is used in the sense of a proper name, a proper noun. This word, Baal, generally means owner or lord or master. Owner, lord, or master as a common noun. But when it's used in reference to the idols, it's a proper noun. It's a name. So that's the name of the idol or the idols in the plural. We'll see in verse 17. It's in the plural. But in the singular sense, They used to call the true God, my Baal. What did they do? To the true God, the God of Israel, they ascribed the idol's name to God. 
the idol's name to God or the idol's abilities to God. Exodus 32 verse 4 illustrates this. Exodus 32 4. When Moses was on the mountain and Aaron was with the people. Remember that the people wanted Aaron to make gods, right? An idol. And he did make an idol. He made a calf, a molten calf. In verse 4, notice what is said in verse 4 about this idol, the calf. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graven tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. What'd they do? They ascribe what God did to the idol. So in a sense, they are conflating and mixing the idol with God. And that's what he's saying in Hosea 2. There's going to be a day when you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to worship me exclusively. You're not going to mix pagan, idolatrous, polytheistic, devilish concepts with me. You, you will worship me in purity. That's the point he makes in verse 16. Verse 17. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by their names anymore. How will this be accomplished if the people are bent in iniquity? And actually, that's what Aaron said in Exodus 32. You know the people that they are in evil or they're prone to evil. They just can't shake off evil. That was Aaron's excuse to Moses. Well, it's true that the people are bent in evil. There's no doubt about that, prone to do evil. That's the way all of us are, right? That's the way Israel was. That's the way Gentiles are. That's the way everything, everybody is. Well, he says he's going to remove these names. That which is impossible because the people are so sinful, it's impossible for them to give it up because they're slaves of idolatry, God's going to do that. He's going to remove it. And they're not going to mention the names of idols anymore. By mentioning names of idols, he means to call upon them, to um, invoke them, to pray to them, to trust them, to put their hope in them. He's referring to Exodus 23.13. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Don't mention them and don't let them be heard from your mouth. He means don't pray to them, don't invoke them, don't believe in them, don't trust them, don't put any hope in them at all. So what he commanded, God now says he's going to make it happen in Hosea 2.17. He commanded it not to be done, and then here he's going to make it possible for them. He's going to cause it to happen. Yes? Also, Paul said when you were pagans who were accustomed to the idols. Yes, you are accustomed to the idols, however you were led. From 1 Corinthians 12, 1-3, he mentions that. But no more, no more invoking idols. Further, verse 18, in that day, I will also make a covenant for them. God makes a covenant. He's describing this redemption in other words, in terms of a covenant. With the beasts of the field, that means wild animals. The birds of the sky, meaning the birds of prey, like the vultures, the eagle, the bat uh, or the um, the ravens like that, the creeping things of the of the ground, such as snakes, rats, the creeping things of the ground. God's going to make a covenant for them, for His people, with these wild creatures and poisonous and dangerous creatures, so that they do not harm the people anymore. That which was wild will be tamed because God's almighty power is 
effected on them. He's also going to prevent enemies from destroying the people. Abolish or break the bow, the sword, and war. No more bow, sword, and war anymore. So that when we lie down to sleep, we lie down in safety. No fear. The thought of invasion will not torment us. So when God says he's going to make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creep, creeping things of the ground, he means, what, what does he mean? What? He means that there's no longer going to be a curse against man, against his redeemed people. No longer a curse against us. Okay. It's similar to Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 when he says that the wild animals and the domestic animals will dwell together without one devouring the other. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, and in Isaiah 65. All right, that's what he's saying. Verses 19 and 20, he's now emphasizing the marital aspect of it. I will betroth you to me forever. To betroth. To betroth. To engage. And what he's referring to is not merely the engagement period, but he's saying that this engagement, that is our union, will be forever. We're not going to be active or engaged temporarily, but Forever, that's what he says in 19. Forever. And who's doing it? Who is seeking a bride and acquiring a bride? God. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. Not in wickedness and injustice, righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. This is the kind of love he has, eternal love. And verse 20, God says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Not unfaithfulness, not in treachery, such as adulterous Israel was against God. Now, this adultery will not happen anymore. It will last forever. And... To illustrate this, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4, describes this with us also. Verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, whom you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He says in verse 2 that he has a godly jealousy. That's another word. Often it has a negative connotation, but not here. This is godly jealousy. Why? Because a husband should be jealous for his wife and the wife should be jealous for her husband in that they should not be with others, only with one another. And that's why it's a godly jealousy. I betroth you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. This is the church being presented to Christ. When false doctrine enters in the picture, then it puts this relationship into jeopardy, right? It endangers the relationship. Well, God's saying that none of this is going to happen because I will ensure 
that this lasts forever in righteousness, justice, loving kindness, compassion, and faithfulness. It's going to happen. Because God does all this, the result, verse 20, Hosea 2.20, then you will know the Lord. This means that they didn't truly know him beforehand. They will truly know him now, but beforehand they didn't. And God's goal with his people, his redeemed people, is for them to know him. For them to know him, right? Hosea emphasizes this. Hosea 4, 6. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. If we don't have true knowledge, we die. We're destroyed. Hosea 6.6 For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants loyalty or faithfulness and he wants obedience rather than ritualistic sacrifices. Not that he's condemning all sacrifices, but we can't substitute rituals for obedience. We must obey. And then one more example in Hosea, Hosea 13, 4 to 5. Hosea 13, 4 to 5. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. He says, you were not to know any God except me, because he's the only Savior. Don't know any other God. Know the Lord only. Why? Because verse 5, I knew you in the wilderness. The translation is, I cared for you. Literally, I knew you. If God knew Israel, then Israel should know him. The relationship should be reciprocal. We know it, it is initiated by God, but then once it's initiated by God and the relationship has been established, then we know God and God knows us. We know him, and he knows us. Galatians 4. Galatians 4. 8 to 11. Galatians 4, 8 to 11. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God... Rather, or rather, to be known by God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. In verse 8, when we did not know God, we were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Idols by nature aren't gods. People call them gods, but they're not by nature true gods. Only our God is the true God. Then nine, but now that you have come to know God, which is a good thing, but what's more important? Or rather to be known by God. To be known by God. Because we are known by God, we know Him. And that's the goal, to know Him faithfully. When you read uh, Hosea 13.4, I have a cross-reference to Acts 4.12. 
Yes, Acts 4.12. Yes, Hosea 13.4, no Savior besides me, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Hosea 2.21. 2.21. And it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. What is this? If we take it literally, it makes no sense. We have to take it figuratively or as an analogy. It's as though the heavens, the earth, the produce, grain, new wine, oil, it's as though they are praying and they are dependent on God. It's as though they are praying or petitioning God and then God answers, God responds. Isn't God promising also uh, they will get... uh a new earth flowing with milk and honey would that compare to this? Yes, yes. Just like God promised them out of Egypt into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they did physically experience that, though they had to forfeit that because of sin. Hosea 2.2-2.13. Yet God will give the true spiritual fruit and produce to those whom he redeems. That's us. That's the church. And it happens because God sows. If God sows it, it will happen. Remember we spoke of God sowing punishment from chapter 1 when he named the one son Jezreel Chapter 1, verse 4, God sows. In that context, he sowed punishment. But in this context, Hosea 2.22, he sows redemption. Blessing. And then he says it clearly in verse 23. I will sow her. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. The question comes up. It was introduced in chapter 1, and now it's coming up again in 2.23. Who is the her? We said redeemed Israel. But let's be more specific. Who is redeemed Israel? Faithful Israel. Faithful Israel. The elect. The elect. And who are the elect? Are the elect... Only Hebrew people, only Jews, Gentiles also. We saw that from chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and chapter 2, verse 1, and even here in 2.23. I will say to those who are, were not my people, you are my people. So who were not his people? The Gentiles. And he's going to say, the dogs, yes, as Jesus said, the dogs. Matthew 22, uh, Matthew 15, um, 22 and following, he says that Gentiles are dogs. So that's the way we were considered, but now we're not going to be called dogs anymore. We're going to be called his people. And we will cry out to him, you are my God. A new relationship, because we know the true and living God. This passage, Hosea 2.23, those skeptics have scratched their heads and pulled out their heads and even maligned the Bible and the apostles. It has to do with the Gentiles. They say, what in the world did Hosea mean? Hosea did not mean Gentiles. So when it's quoted in the New Testament as applicable to Gentiles, it can't be right. But it is right because the apostles do it, and the apostles do not err in their interpretations. So let's look at two examples of these being quoted. 
The first one, these verses, this is a combination of Hosea 1, 10 and 11 and Hosea 2, 23. Romans 9, our first example. Romans 9, 25 to 26. Actually, let's begin at Romans 9, 24. Romans 9, 24. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. You see, he's describing the elect who comprise Jews and Gentiles. After saying Gentiles, he immediately proves his point by quoting Hosea in verses 25 and 26, and then Isaiah in 27 to 29. But let's look at the Hosea part of it. 9, 25, and 26. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That's the Apostle Paul quoting from Hosea 1, 10 and 11. And 2.23. He applies it to Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. First, oh. First Peter. Deuteronomy 32.21. <coughs> yes, that's, that, we'll go to that one too. That's a good one. Where Moses anticipates it. Yes. Okay. But let's first confirm from 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Where Peter quotes Hosea. First Peter 2 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and you had not received mercy, but now you have received. Mercy. Does he include us? Yes, he's including all Jews and uh, Gentiles redeemed in Christ. And that's what Hosea meant too. Okay, now you were referring to a passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. We find here... We're going to find here some irony in Moses. This irony is intended to provoke jealousy among the Jews. This jealousy, provocation of jealousy, is intentional by God. And a cross-reference for further study would be Romans 11. Romans 11 also makes mention of God purposely making unbelieving Jews jealous of believing Gentiles, those who believe in Christ. He purposely did that because when he does that, with a few of them, it provokes them to think and then to repent of their own sins and believe just like the Gentiles believe in Christ. But we see this anticipated, predicted by Moses, Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 32, and we start at, let me first start at verse 5, 32.5. Um, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. He says they are corrupt defective, perverse, and crooked, right? And they're not his children. Are they not his children or are they his children? Does he call them sons and daughters or does he not call them sons and daughters? In verse 5, he's talking about the wicked, the unrepentant wicked, and he says they are not his children. Let's continue. In a sense, they are his children. In another sense, they're not his children. Let's look 
And we continue at verse 19. Verse 19. And the Lord saw this, saw their idolatry, and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. So they are his sons and daughters in the superficial sense, in the sense that he brought them out of Egypt and did many good things to them and gave them his word. In that sense, he's calling them sons and daughters, but they're not in the true sense because of verse 5. We continue in verse 20. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Why? They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. They, Israel, physical Israel, made God jealous with idols. So God repays them by making them jealous by redeeming Gentiles. That's what he means in verse 21. Those who are not a people, those who are a foolish nation. Because Gentiles, from their upbringing, they worship idols and they are foolish, right? Foolish and worthless. Now, how do we know he made, uh, made mention of Gentiles here? He's more explicit. If that's not explicit enough, he's more explicit in verse 43. Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Verse 43, Moses calls on the nations to rejoice with God's people. Moses anticipated the Gentiles believing in Christ. That's what he's singing about. So yes, that's what we have we are now the people of God. All right, now let's wrap it up in chapter 3. Chapter 3. It seems that in chapter 3, God is telling Hosea the prophet to go find his adulterous wife who has prostituted herself and bring her back and make the marriage permanent and Therefore, he's making it happen in this case. In the first case, he didn't make it happen. In this case, he's making it happen, just like God said in chapter 2, 14 to 23. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again. That's why it seems that he's telling Hosea to bring Gomer back home. Go again. Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Is that not what happened? Hosea was told to go marry her and love her. And he loves her, but she became an adulteress. And here's the analogy. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. That's the analogy, right? They turn to idols, love raisin cakes. Queen of heaven, they would, they were... Yes, they would make cakes to the queen of heaven in, in Jeremiah 44. In Je- Jeremiah 44, 15 to 19, they would make cakes to the queen, queen of heaven. Now, raisin cakes. A raisin cake is something sweet, mm-hmm. right? Something desirable, something that uh, pleases the palate, right? And this is done in worship, as is done with all festivals. There is the solid food, but then there is the dessert, right? So the raisin cakes would have been the dessert that they would have enjoyed while they worshiped their idols. Well, in obedience to God's command, 
Verse 2, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. He bought her. That means that she belonged as a slave, probably as a slave prostitute by this point. And he had to redeem her out of that slavery. In Exodus 21.32, a slave was worth 30 shekels of silver. But in this case, he acquires her for 15 shekels and an omer and a half of barley, which apparently in the market would have been a significant amount of barley, but in terms of human equivalence and purchase price, it's showing the desperate nature or desperate, yes, desperate nature and insignificant way in which she is considered. She's worthless. She's worthless and compared to a bunch of food. And that's what God does with us. We are worthless and yet God redeems us. Verse 3, Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. This, this we take to mean that he insists that she remain at home and be faithful, and he will be toward her. This is the proper union of husband and wife. She's faithful and he's faithful and they don't commit sin against one another and God. Verse four, for the sons of Israel will will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar and without ephod or household idols. Verse four, the people of Israel will for many days, just like verse three, many days, abandon their idols. And for many days does not mean for many days temporarily, but for many days permanently, since he's been talking about permanence from the second chapter into this chapter, right? So he means forever, eternally. That's the many days of verses 3 and 4. And why? Why are they going to give up their idolatry, the the idolatry of verse 4? Because of whom they seek. Verse 5, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. To return means to repent. This is not used very frequently in the New Testament this way, but it is in 1 Peter 2.25, but you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. 1 Peter 2.25 says return, meaning repent. Here they will repent and seek the Lord and David their king. They will repent and come to the Lord and David. David their king is Christ. David is another word for Christ. Ezekiel 34:24. Ezekiel 34:24 also a Christological passage and prophecy just like this one. Christ is called David. They're going to come to the Lord and to Christ. They at one point in Psalm 2:2 they were against Christ as a nation, and as the leadership of the nation against Christ. But here, they will come seeking Christ. Further, they'll come to the Lord trembling and seeking His goodness in the last days. That is our period. Trembling to the Lord and to the Lord's goodness. Also in Second Samuel, when uh, King David is talking about the is it eleven? No, not eleven. He sings in eleven. Uh, when he talks about 
the covenant with him and he's speaking about Christ. Eternity. Yes. That's Second Samuel 7. Yeah. And the reason Christ has the name David has to do with Second Samuel 7, okay. the covenant of David, okay. the Davidic covenant, Second Samuel 7. All right, one clarification here. Why would it be that it's such a good thing to come trembling to the Lord? Come trembling to the Lord. It's a good thing, as it says in Isaiah 66, 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2, or 1 and 2. It says that in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, that we should be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And even the Corinthians are commended in 2 Corinthians 7, 15 for receiving Titus with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, they received the messenger of God. And also, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And why? For we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. We come trembling because now we fear God we don't fear man. We don't feel fear our circumstances or anything. We only fear God. And fearing God includes trembling before Him. Trembling before His holiness. Trembling before His goodness. Trembling before all of the great things He has done and will do for us. That's a good trembling. Trembling before Him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.